Hello and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. Uh, my name is Hussein. Still stuck in the cubby. Nothing new there. Um, I do have Ramadan brain. It's the first week of Ramadan. I have not. Um, it's about two hours until I get to eat and drink. I am. I'm. I'm feeling normal. These are my normal hours. Um, my name is Phoebe. I am currently eating for 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 both Hussein and I. <laughs> I was about to say I'm currently eating for two, but then that sounds like a pregnancy announcement. I am not. It does. I am not. You've got to be careful I am not about currently that. pregnant with my co-host although yeah. in some ways i am his mother okay. let's should we move on from that let's move on from that as an intro well, I, was gonna say, I, think, I think the only thing pregnant people do is smoke for two I think <laughs> otherwise you're just eating for one yeah no do that um i was gonna say because i'm living vicariously through people who can eat and drink right now uh phoebe what are you snacking on oh um i just had a i just had a sack of jelly babies and i stopped and i should have stopped about three quarters of the way through said Ooh. sack but okay. I didn't, okay, and so my, I ate, yeah. and I ate all of it, and now I feel a little bit sick. So my problem with jelly babies. I want to know if that was an imperial <laughs> sack or a metric sack. Uh, great question. Um, I don't know. I've thrown it. I've thrown it away now. It's in grams, isn't it? I was also going to say imperial that, sack like, is obviously grounded in the uh, the the size of the scrotum of the king, circa seventeen twenty two. So yeah, yeah, that's um, right. I think jelly babies are a really great candy, but I don't think I can have it no, because you're it's not, jelly. No, you can't, you're, not, you're not allowed. Gelatin, mm. yeah. So I can't even vicariously live through uh, your your treats. I think I'm you sorry can, about you that. You can get um. You can get you like can imitation. Get, like, you can get ones, ones that are like that are yeah. fine. I think like pretend. Yeah, some, but pretend you, like, gelatin. The, but the but the actual Bassett's jelly babies, you can't get them. They're, they're gelatin. Mm. They're like you know yeah. they use the beef stuff. I'm sorry, man. Uh, and sad to say, no. But I'm glad. I'm hope you enjoyed it. Now, uh, for listeners who haven't guessed who is on our show. Um, we are very proud to, uh, this is your first time here, actually. Uh, we're very it proud is to my have first time. Uh, Corey Doctore. Uh, he's the author of the forthcoming novel, Red Team Blues. Also a bunch of other novels, nonfiction, graphic novels. He's a visiting professor in computer science at the Open University. And he is, and I really hope I've got this right, the pr- proprietor of Pluralistic.net, which is a surveillance-free and ad-free newsletter. Um, I absolutely forgot the other part of that but i hope I so hope tracker free. Like, and also a tracker website free. yeah and a website yeah well it's like you know a lot of the actual was the background research that we were for this episode does does that a lot of that does actually come from pluralistic.net so i'm very grateful for that um i knew i forgot one thing and it was tracker free but yeah subscribe mm-hmm. to that newsletter all the links will be in the show notes Corey, how how's it going yeah i'm uh, i'm okay i am not um uh observing ramadan so uh i'm well fed uh, I'm I'm very jealous. I'm very jealous. Like I get crowd. Like these are my crabby hours. So you know, so if I, if I, if I, I had grunting. I had yeah, a friend growing up who observed Ramadan, and yeah. he would through the entire period sing, "Can't eat or drink or smoke on Ramadan." Done. Not much fun. Every day, this was the Not thing that fun. he did to pass the hours. <laughs> God. God, yeah. Now we have phones, so we don't. No one has to do that anymore. Yeah. Um. Oh my God. Uh. Yeah. No. But that's now just going to go through my head for the rest of the episode. So thank you very much. Um. <laughs> it's no, stuck yeah. in my head every year at Ramadan. It's like oh, just going around and around. <laughs> uh, sorry to hear that, man. Uh. But no. Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. And on this episode, uh, this is like a really uh, interesting one because we are going to do a uh real sort of. This is going to be an AI episode, but it's also going to be a historic posts episode mm. because this is something that phoebe you've wanted to talk about for a long time yeah. before we get to that um a little bit of ai news just to kick us off uh i want to talk a little bit about the pope coat um the the viral coat that or the viral sort of um fancy coat that the pope was said to be wearing that turned out to be an ai 
uh i i did think there was something a little dodgy about it when i first saw it uh but um yeah it did turn out to be fake but a lot of people kind of it seemed like a lot of people were convinced that it was uh the real thing i'm going to try to describe this picture although you probably know what it is it is um it's the pope uh that's the first bit he is not the young pope he is the old pope and he is wearing a big white puffy coat a big you know one of those sort of designer puffer jackets and um, I think that's but and he's got and he's got like a cross. He's wearing a cross outside of it. It looks very much like something you would see in a fashion camp, like a sort of fashion house campaign. Um, but it was made by we're using the AI art tool Midjourney. Um, and yeah, I, I think so. Before I sort of get into a little bit more of the details that I found about it, uh, I would like to get some takes on the Pope coat. Uh, Phoebe, what did you think about the Pope coat? Would you wear it? Would I wear the Pope coat? No, I'm yeah. I'm not. I don't like I don't like the sleeping bag. Bad coats they are not <laughs> friends to the petite woman whenever i've tried to wear one i literally just look like a kind of like a little kind of glow worm <laughs> kind of shuffling like shuffling along the street i can't i can't i can't be doing with it they look they look they always look really cozy but i don't know yeah. how you don't just sort of just wrap it around you and just like fall asleep on the floor also because i'm very elderly it just looks like they look like school coats to me yeah, like, no, they, they do. do. They I do used to not, have one of those. They coats, do not yeah. look like chic coats to to me. No, please, puffer jacket fans. I like. I respect your warmth, but I, you look like glowworms as well. It's not just me. It's not just small people who look like glowworms in them. Everyone is bundling around looking like a glowworm. Um, I saw this picture and thought. That's an unusual coat for the Pope to wear, and then didn't think about it that much. That's like that's that was literally my only take. I definitely didn't. Yeah. I definitely didn't think <gasps> the machines—they come for us, you know. Single bullet in the gun. Yeah. Like, be, like, Qu- beg, like, yeah. beg, beg God for His forgiveness. You know that kind. That that, that was not <laughs> that was not the effect. And then like, and then I saw people being like, "Oh, <gasps> it's it's AI. I fell for it. I can't believe I fell for it." And I was just like, "Yeah, but." Mm. I, I, I didn't I didn't really I didn't really see quite what what the issue was it looked it, it, it felt like it felt very very low stakes and anything which is more high stakes I feel like people are more likely to examine and look at the hands and try and see if there are any of the kind of you know the the, the odder market like markers of of these artificially generated images like like, I I I, str- I struggled to see why it was why it was such a, a raving concern. The idea that the the idea of this of this image, particularly since like the like the image of Trump getting arrested or you know or whatever, it it just didn't it 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 didn't feel to me an enormously big deal. Now, okay, I'm gonna say quite a lot of things don't seem to me like an enormously big deal in this episode. So in so if you're listening to it in the future and uh like we have been overtaken by a by a race of machines all wearing puffer jackets, then you know, please feel free to <laughs> feel free to this you me with with what with what I'm about to say on this on this episode. But it just didn't it didn't strike it didn't strike me as anything more concerning than what's already been what's already been um perfectly straightforward for a very very long time with photoshop 
or for that matter, what has been perfectly straightforward, like perfectly straightforward with just natural human idiocy and natural human incuriosity. Um, and I know I bring this up a lot, but I think but it is my favorite example of it. Last year, when, um, uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a picture that was doing the rounds, which, uh, which appeared to show uh, a soldier um, aiming their aiming a gun at a small at a small child, and this was going and this was everywhere. This picture, look at this terrible picture. Look at what's going on in Ukraine. And I looked at it and I was like, "Why is it sandy? It's January. I, is anyone looking at this fucking picture before they're like before they're spreading it around, saying this is a, this is an awful scene from Ukraine? So I so I don't see what like what is really the next stage of of the poke i thought it was just pretty funny the guy who did it like the guy who made the image um said that he was said that he was on shrooms and was like i think it'd be funny if the pope was wearing a big white puffy coat like arsene wenger and he's right it, it, it would be funny it's it's hot it's this is a this is a victimless prank to me that's my. This is this is my take on the Pope coat, and sorry, my final take on the Pope coat is: if people are really this concerned about it, then anyone who is coding the software that allows people to make these images should include like a line of code which just puts a watermark on anything that was created using using AI technology. Surely that surely that covers it. Oh, hang on. He's saying I can't hear you anymore. And I'm going to say, Corey, what did you think about the Pope coat AI and would you wear the Pope coat? Well, I am a recovering Canadian. And so uh, warm garments always look good to me. Uh, I also <laughs> liked the gorillas. So that kind of coat appeals. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think Phoebe had the, the right take there that um, people don't interrogate to a fine degree things of little consequence and, and perhaps even doubly so when they're slightly funny. Right. You don't you don't want to, uh, you know, if 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 somebody tells you a joke that has an implausibility in it, um, you know, you'd be you'd be quite dull to say, well, pff, as you know, alligators don't speak, let alone to hippopotami. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's just uh, you know, it's it, like it doesn't matter. Right. And and it reminds me of so much of what Lee Vinsel calls crit hype, where you see these genuinely unimpressive examples of technology being held up as really impressive examples of technology. The big one being like the Facebook voter turnout experiment where yeah. they put 60 million people into an experimental condition to see if they can increase voter turnout and, and got 280,000 extra votes than they predicted, which is a 0.4% effect size, uh, yeah. which, you know, there aren't a lot of elections being swayed by 0.4% of the vote. And even if there are, like, one thing that we know about persuasive techniques is that they tend to reduce in efficacy over time because people become inured to them. They regress to the mean. Mm. And so, you know, if, if like, at a certain point, someone who's never encountered the idea that $9.99 is, is, is not $10, uh, and that person goes off and says, I just paid significantly less than $10 for this $9.99 object, it doesn't mean that you've discovered an enduring blind spot in human cognition. I think most of us mm. at this point are able to to cleanly distinguish between uh, uh, genuine discounts on ten dollars and nine ninety nine, and so yeah, I think it's 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 um, 
it's singularly unimpressive as these things go. Uh, and, you know, as, as Vincel, I think, would say, the purpose of this is to um, big up the underlying technology, right? Uh, you yeah. know, if you're, if you're invested in the idea that there is a $3 trillion valuation or $13 trillion, whatever Morgan Stanley is saying this week, on, on these so-called AI systems, God, you know, just the fact that we have to call them AI is, is itself a form of credit yeah. hype. Um, mm. Then you know any any demonstration of their powers is is a uh, an affirmative step in that that valuation number. You know, it's 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 like um, the kind of uh, what Maria Farrell calls the prodigal tech bro, where you say, you know, I used to be an evil wizard hacking your dopamine loops, and now I'm a good wizard who will give you magical spells to protect your dopamine loops. And they're these like much more prosaic ex explanations, like. Maybe it wasn't that, you know, you, you built a mind control ray to sell my nephew a fidget spinner and then let Robert Mercer st steal it to make my uncle a QAnon. Maybe my <laughs> uncle was like a racist prick all along and all you did was help him find <laughs> other racist pricks and talk to them, right? Like that—that yeah. that is a, a distinct possibility that shouldn't be discounted, especially given mm -hmm. that it's so much more parsimonious than the idea that a mind control ray was conjured out of existence, into existence by a bunch of mediocre tech bros. Mm. Yeah. This is so this is so interesting. I'm so glad you're saying this because this is actually what I've been kind of thinking about and kind of formulating since we decided to do this to do this episode is that what is that what all of this stuff actually makes me think of is uh is is advertising. Mm -hmm. So like when I see so when I see tech workers saying, "Look, I'm telling you, we have no we are not ready. We are not ready for what's coming." Um first of all, when in the last 20 years has a Silicon Valley worker expressed concern about the possible possible social harm done by one of their products? Like literally when? Yeah. When is this ever? When has this ever, ever taken place? So why are they suddenly so um, so afraid of what it is they have unleashed? And what it makes me think of is yeah like you said we were bad wizards and now we're good wizards it it makes me think of uh cambridge analytica yeah which pretended that it had this kind of access to to dark magic when what it had access to was just really really normal uh data like data science which determined which was called determined uh the likelihood of kind of voter behavior so like the kinds of newspapers and magazines you read mm -hmm. but because a part of it was a sort of a was sort of a kind of pt barnum kind of confidence trick um saying you know ah we've got this we've got this method we've got this kind of mind control method and again going back even going back even further it's it's like the it's like the kind of the principles behind behind mk ultra like yeah. is this person is this person telling us what we want to hear because he's been beaten with a stick or is it because he's been given a magic mind control serum like which is which is actually the most likely yeah i think that's and totally right i mean it, you know in that in, in in ad in in the world of advertising and the and the ad business there has always been one group of people whom advertisers could reliably convince and that's people who buy advertising Right. Mm, so like yeah. <laughs> JP Wanamaker of Wanamaker's department store very famously said, half my advertising money is wasted. I just don't know which half, which is like amazing because his ad salespeople 
convinced him that only half of his advertising was wasted. Right. I, I mean, you know, the, as far as we know, now that we can quantify, at least to a certain extent, the efficacy of advertising by, by measuring click through and so on, it, it's like it's way more like ninety nine point nine percent. And, you know, this is true, uh, as you say, of MK Ultra. It's true of pickup artists. Like <laughs> if, if you go around and say disgusting things to women, every woman you see and you do it a million times, eventually you'll meet someone who's like vulnerable or undiscerning or intoxicated enough to fall for it. It doesn't mean you found the magic spell to unlock women's libidos with random dudes who, you know, read pickup artist blogs. It Mm. it just means that, you know, you threw enough darts that eventually you got one into a bullseye, but that doesn't make you Mm. an expert darts player. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think, I I don't know. I mean, I have... uh... I, I don't actually have that many thoughts on the Pope AI code because I feel like, but I do, I do sort of definitely agree with just the fact that like the reaction to it does seem overblown. And like one of the things I saw just before we started recording was uh, this like petition that has now come out and like, I haven't done any research into it. So I don't know, Corey, if you like know more it's about this, terrible. But, the, but this sort of like anti AI petition that like Elon Musk and stuff has signed um, on the, like, pro, like Although they, of, yeah. they forged Bill Gates, signature on it, by the way. That's come out. A what? bunch of the so-called signatories were not signatories. What? Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, but I guess I wondered, like, why? Yeah. Well, what are your sort of like? Are, are there any sort of like reasonings kind of behind that? Especially like, does does do these like AI tools not to kind of like over slow overplay them, but do they sort of like threaten? Um, like, yeah, do they threaten these tech guys uh, so much that like this is sort of why they're stopping it, rather than this kind of like broader concern about like the threat that it like has against like civilization. I mean, this is an area where I feel somewhat qualified to comment if only because they're engaged in science fiction. And that's been my day job for a couple of decades. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, a bunch of science fiction writers, including me have commented on this, Ted Chang and Charlie Strauss uh, about the idea that, you know, the, the, the metaphor that AI kind of chimes with and makes these people so um, concerned about is the limited liability company. Right. Like if you are uh, um, someone who fancies yourself quite a powerful and important and kind of willful person and you have conjured up this thing out of nowhere that is uh, itself very powerful and changing the world and you are nominally in charge of it, but it never does what you want it to do and it makes you miserable all the time, then it it can be very easy to say, yeah, we are going to create things that we think will be the masters of. And really will be their servants. I mean, I think that, you know, that is Elon Musk's experience. He's now the most popular man on Twitter, uh, at least in terms of <laughs> followers. And he's still an unhappy divorced dad. And, you know, mm. the the Twitter, he, he, he is like driving the Twitter machine and the Twitter machine isn't producing the outputs that that he is expecting. And so he's like, hey, guess what? It turns out that like Frankenstein was uh, really on the money. You know, one of the things I learned reading Brian Merchant's uh, amazing um, uh, Blood in the Machine, which is coming out in the autumn, is his book about the Luddites, is that Frankenstein was a Luddite book, that it was uh, that Shelley was a Luddite sympathizer and that Frankenstein is supposed to be the workers who uh, only want to be uh, handled with dignity uh, by the people who are inventing things, right? By the by, the mad inventors, yeah. and and that's why Frankenstein is kind of the tragic hero, and and Doctor Frankenstein is the is the you know tragic 
well, not villain, but at least, you know, the tragic figure, the, the, the kind of the person who's to blame for the, mm. the misery in the Frankenstein tale. Well, this is why he's Prometheus, right? Because right. He's, been, he's been given given this gift that he's not supposed to have by this ersatz god. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, I mean, and and like in terms of a formal critique of that dumb letter, you know, Emily Bender and um I've got a blanking his name, Arvin from from Princeton, uh, have both done a really good job picking it apart. Bender's work is widely cited in that in the footnotes of that letter, and she's she's doing a real kind of Annie Hall McLuhan bit where she's like, you know nothing of my work, right? Like they quote mm-hmm. the Stochastic Parrots paper that she and Tina G- Gebru wrote. Uh where and they say, you know, like this is the, as as a footnote to their claim that AIs are becoming powerful and harmful, which is it, entirely not what they claim in the stochastic parrots thing. They claim that like training AIs is bad for the environment, mm-hmm. and that and that uh, you know decision support systems embed certain biases, which are then magnified because they occur at scale. That is like in no way like saying that you know general AI is around the corner and we're gonna. We're going to end up, uh, you know, servants to our machine overlords. You know, I think that that um, I've compared this before to the idea that, like, we figured out how to breed really fast horses. And this means that any day now we're going to breed a steam engine. Right. There is no like path from a statistical inference engine to, uh, uh, you know, cognizant cognitive being. It's just it is as as Gabriel and and um, and Bender say, it's a stochastic parrot. It's going to say something. Mm. It'll probably make a kind of sense, but it, it it doesn't understand what it's saying, which is why it lies, because it can't know when it's not lying. Mm. Mm. So speaking of Frankenstein, well, like uh, I was trying, I was trying really trying to find a segue to get into like next section. Um, uh, speaking, well, I guess like speaking of AIs that maybe are genius, um, why don't we talk about Loeb? Um, so this was like the spooky AI that i think like mm. this sort of came up in the scene in april last year um and i'll sort of read uh, a kind of bit of a uh I'll, I'll read like a bit of the kind of introduction to this so the swedish artist called uh, super composite said that they first generated these images in april 2022 using the algorithmic technique of negative prompt weights um and it's described as accessing latent space the initial prompt there's a lot of kind of like in the notes i i sort of pasted this and now i'm trying to read it there's a lot of like skyline logo um dot dot one one um so i actually am going to ignore this and sort of say that lobe is a creepy image lobe is a very like this kind of kind of creepy image of a uh i some people have like sort of called it a demon and there have been some who have called it like the first like sprite of like the AI world. Some have kind of called it like a, some have called her a gremlin. Some have sort of said that like you shouldn't gender Loeb. Um, I, I don't... <laughs> Sorry, that's a, that's a very funny, that is an objectively funny no, response. I, 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 I found this thread where it's like Loeb doesn't actually have a gender and actually it's like, you know, you shouldn't give Loeb one. And I'm just like, well, maybe, I don't know. I, the only thing I can sort of say was like when this thread was sort of posted and I and I didn't sort of go down because I didn't want to know how creepy this image got. But I think the idea was that like Super Composite created this idea of like a kind of creepy, um, creepy figure of what looks to be like a woman in a horror film or TV show. And at some point when he kept sort of doing the when Super Composite kept doing these generations, the same like the image of the woman wouldn't kind of alter. It would just sort of stay as it was. And so 
the idea was that like, oh, what you've done is kind of create, you've created this sort of being within like the AI matrix and you now can't get rid of it. And obviously people were freaking out about that. And I think a lot of the reactions to like the Pope Co in terms of like the catastrophizing and the idea that like, you know, uh, oh, you've kind of created something beyond your own comprehensions. Like you created the first sort of evil force of AI and everything. Um, honestly, when I first kind of saw this thread, like I didn't want to see how creepy the image could be, but I also just didn't really feel like it was that consequential. And I guess Phoebe, as um, you, you, I, I, because you sort of pitched this idea as an episode, and mm. because you have an interest in it, I wondered whether what your thoughts were on okay. Loeb and like why, what, what drew your interest into this. Okay, so as the um as the resident um baby of of the show, um I hate horror films. I um like even and it, like the the worse the horror film is, the uh the more the more objectively distressing I find it. So it's not even a case, it's not even a case of quality. Uh I um I believe in all kinds of mad things and I was so scared of this picture. I had nightmares about this creature for for several days after after the first time I saw it, which I know is ridiculous. You don't need to tell me it's ridiculous. Um so what I think is interesting about it is it just it just seems to be to me to be expressive of of uh, just a really consistent interest in uh, in injecting the uncanny into the explainable world. This this is this just seems this seems very and like I'm so, so I'm so sorry, Eleanor, if you're listening to this, <laughs> I'm using medieval as a kind of general <laughs> description, not because this is what actually people in the medieval period were like, but there is something quite medieval about you know you have you had this okay so there's new technology and the new technology is going to be used as a conduit for demons to access the 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 human sphere and this is and this and this appears as a fear and as a kind of social and cultural tendency so, so, so histor- historically and across across cultures so it seems like a very kind of old um kind of old fear um dressed up in dressed up in a kind of in a in a newer one and i think it also takes advantage of uh of the fact that things like latent space are just as far as i can tell quite regular just technical language like it doesn't it doesn't mean that there is a kind of space between um space between uh digital space and the real space that could that can be used to kind of to generate to generate a demon which can then cross the boundaries i don't i as as far as i can tell (laughs) this is not what (laughs) this is not the technical meaning of latent space and i think it's just i think it's just a way of playing on these very old fears to generate new versions of ghost stories and i actually Mm. think that if nothing else, it's a really good example of how this kind of technology actually actually can't kill regular human invention and regular mm. human imagination because you still have to because you still have to have to have a, a, 
the creative capacities of of a person to be able to to be able to come up with what is essentially just quite an effective ghost story. Hmm. Corey, that's, those are yeah. my thoughts. That's those yeah. are my thoughts on Loab. Corey, Loeb. I, yeah, Corey. Well, what were your thoughts on Loeb? Did like, did you so, see it when it came out? And like, do you have any like? I also, as someone who like writes science fiction and everything, like, you know, how like how novel was uh, Loeb, and like, you know, were the sort of reactions to it initially kind of like? Also, I'm totally like... prepared to be corrected. If you think she's real, <laughs> then tell me. <laughs> I need to know if you think she's real. So I don't think she's real, and I think you're. Okay. I think you've really, um, again, you've you've summarized it pretty neatly. There are lots of things that I have an irrational fear of. You know, I I don't like horror movies, just like you. I'm actually married to someone who really does like horror movies, and we had to stop going because uh. the first thing I would do is I would grab her hand and squeeze it very tightly. But then I'd get so square, scared that I'd stuff my own hand in my mouth, except I'd be holding hers, and so I'd bite her <laughs> hand really hard. And so we had to we had to stop going to horror movies. Actually, my 15 year old dragged us both out to Cocaine Bear yesterday, which I had no idea what to expect, and it's very gory, and I okay. I, I did not enjoy it. Uh, and so I, I mean, (laughs) as you were talking about this, I thought of a few things, um, that, that are, uh, kind of important reference points or useful reference points when, when thinking about what this thing means. So the first is that, you know, the internet is not just a way of discovering things that you love. It's also a way of discovering things that you hate. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're pretty familiar with the idea that like, you didn't know what words you could use to describe how you felt about your gender until you got on the internet, or you didn't know what words you could use to describe, you know, or, or you never suspected that a certain kind of animation existed before you got on the internet. Now it's the thing that you care about. I mean, all of that stuff is kind of well understood, but there's also these things like um, trypophobia, T-R-Y-P-O phobia, oh, yeah. which is the fear of small holes. And if you put that into Google image search, it's just like a bunch of people making um, shoops uh, where they're like combining lotus seed pods with like skin. And it is just, I mean, even as someone who does not have trypophobia, it squicks me a lot. <laughs> like I don't, yeah. I don't, I, cause I, I do have some phobias. I'm afraid of heights and it's, I can tell the difference between a phobia and just being squicked and it definitely squicks me. And so it would be amazing if you uh, sort of went spelunking in a kind of complex, complex generative uh, output and you didn't find anything that was fascinating, disgusting, erotic, you know, whatever. It evinced some strong emotion, right? I mean, that that's what happens when we when we, you know, encounter new stuff is sometimes it surprises us. The other thing that I was thinking about, though, were these things called uh, Haikagani or samurai crabs. And and mm. the story is that um, there's a, a superstition among some Japanese fishermen that if you um, eat a crab whose shell mottling resembles a face, that it will be bad luck because that is a reincarnated drowned fisherman or something. I may, I may have some minor details wrong here. And so the fishermen throw back the face-like crab shells. So the shells with face-like, uh, the crabs with face-like shells. And of course, over time, because of this artificial selection, all the crabs that survive have face-like shells, which means that the fishermen have to become a lot more discerning or they're not going to get any crabs. So they're like, actually, that's not as face-like as I, as uh, you know, maybe last year I would have called that a face. This year, I'm not going to call it a face. And over time through this selective pressure, if you, again, if you go and you look up samurai crab on image search, these fucking crabs have got samurai faces on their backs, right? Like mm. you can do an awful lot with a self-adapting system 
by imposing some selective pressure on it. So again, if you have a whole group of people who are sitting there typing prompts that are variations on each other, that are, you know, guiding the planchette of this Ouija board towards a common response that they all tacitly kind of understood when they went into it because they're all whatever, you know, poisoned by Slenderman, then, you know, again, it wouldn't be surprising to see this pop out of it. None of which is to minimize it. I, I mean, Phoebe, I think you're right. I think this is fucking cool, right? Like, like, it's interesting that we can do this kind of collective stuff. And one of the things that I'm somewhat dismayed about and uh, what I think of as a very low quality debate about generative AI and artists' rights is is the extent to which we're recapitulating the early days of the sampling wars, where you have people who are saying, uh, you're not making art with this stuff, you're stealing from me, and there is no such thing as art that steals from me. If you steal from me, it is axiomatically not art. And that mm. the end point of that was creating a, a new right to sample, which didn't exist kind of in, in, in clear copyright precedent when the sampling began. That right was sort of conjured up out of uh, precedent and practice. And now that right has been immediately transferred to the big three record labels that already control 70% of all music recordings. And if mm. you want to sample, you have to sign to them. And to sign to them, you have to sign away your sampling rights, which means that everyone who samples now pays a tax to the record labels, none of which goes to musicians. And that was what we got by creating this right. And if we're going to create a right, for example, to train um, you know, uh, uh, an animation system on an animator's illustrations then every major animation studio is just going to say, great, now your conditions of employment in include uh, signing away that right. Uh, and given that the only uh, entities with means, motive, and opportunity to amass a data set, train a model with it, and then use it to fire animators are exactly the same firms that would be in a position to acquire that right if we were to create it. What we're in danger of doing is snuffing out all the interesting experimentation mm -hmm. that leads to stuff like mm -hmm. this, while at the same time, putting everyone who does creative labor out of business by giving them a right that is transferable that will therefore be transferred to the monopolists who are most hungry to fire their asses. Yeah. I think that I think that is such an important point and 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 like and I'll be I'll, I'll be I'll be honest here like particularly particularly as a writer some of these some of these developments have started to uh concern me a little not for my not for my own work but for uh for people I know who for example work in work in stuff like uh medical communications mm -hmm. who mm. whose whose bosses have just sort of thought well I'm paying this person and that's and it makes more sense for me to be uh for me to be increasing my increasing my bottom line and um and using this technology so it's so it's much so it's much less uh it's much less creative labor that I'm concerned about than uh than the kind of the more the more sort of me sort of uh more menial side of mm -hmm. um of work that that you know that bosses are going to work out that they can that they can replace i think that i think that it's really easy to jump to this kind of oh god we thought that we thought that automation would would free people up to be you know write, writing wonderful books and poems and songs and painting beautiful pictures but actually all it's all it's meant is that it's given it's given capitalism and it's a, a kind of a reason to kind of evolve beyond the need for humans to sustain it, which is, I, I can see, I can see that fear, but I think it might be 
a slightly overblown fear because just because of the way that systems um adjust they quite often adjust and reconstitute in uh in significantly worse forms for the people who suffer under them that's definitely that's definitely true but i think that the point you're making is really really important which is that as soon as you start taking uh as soon as you start um issuing monopolies um on the kind of technology that that people can use either to enhance existing work or um or to think of sort of new ways of producing their work then it's not going to be the people who make the work who have these monopolies because it never is yeah Uh, i mean i think you know to, to channel brian merchant again here you know the the point of the of the of the automatic loom was not to decrease the number of labor inputs needed to uh, to produce fabric. That was incidental. The, the main mm. benefit of it was it let mill owners fire skilled workers and replace them with yeah. children they kidnapped from from orphanages uh, filled with with war orphans from the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, those children were then worked for like 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day in a 10 year period of indenture. And, uh, you know, they were they were beaten and they were starved. And, you know, like one of them actually ended up writing a memoir that inspired uh, Dickens to write Oliver Twist. Uh, mm. And so, you know, that's like that's the, the, the purpose of this automation for our bosses. Mm. It doesn't mean that there is a problem with automation. Right. It just means mm. that like and, and again, I think like the Luddite credo is what the machine does matters a lot less than who it does it for and who it does it to. Uh, Absolutely, and, and you know that's what we need to like have a laser focus on here, as opposed to like you know this kind of you know I, I, I tell me if I'm getting too far on the weeds here, but you know for for like 20 years we ha- have been trying to push back against this uh, ahistorical and kind of nonsensical tendency to to describe artists and what they do as a kind of solitary pursuit. Uh, mm. that, you know, and, and to acknowledge kind of the ecstasy of influence that, you know, we make things out of other things when we make art. Uh, you know, my mentor, Judith Merrill in science fiction, in her memoir, writes about how, like, the residents of this leftist uh, polyamorous science fiction group house in New York, the Futurians, like, invented every major trope in science fiction over big, like, spaghetti potluck dinners. And, you know, that that was, like, how this stuff all came about, you know, everybody invented everything all at once together, right? That's where that, that's where the innovation came from, not from like one unitary genius. And, Mm. uh, and, and, you know, it's very easy to like declare yourself to be a unitary genius and your boss would like you to, because if you're a unitary genius, then you have the exclusive right to something that your boss can then take from you. And if your boss takes that right from you, then they can stop everyone else from doing the thing that you've done. And while we've made some progress in like dispelling that vision of creativity, we're we're still mired in a kind of economic model of it, where we think of the primary thing that helps artists as being copyright, which is like an individual bargaining right, as opposed to like a sectoral bargaining right. You know, musicians all have the sectoral bargaining right to record a cover of any song. Uh, but to sample a song, you have to individually bargain with the rights holder. And that's why, like Taylor Swift, when when her shitty label was sold to a shitty private equity guy who hated her and wanted to torture her, her eventual response after he refused to sell her masters back to her was to go back and record covers of her own albums, because everybody has the right to record a Taylor Swift album, including Taylor Swift. 
And if we'd given her like the individual bargainable right to sell the right to, to co- record a cover the way that we do with samples, the right to sample a song, that right would have been non-negotiably acquired by her label when her career was starting. But the, the sectoral right is one that everyone has, including her, and it allowed her to escape the prison of her boss. And so, you know, like, what are we going to do about, about uh, uh, AI-generated art? Like, well, one thing we might do is say... Um, as the U.S. Copyright Office has said so far, copyright inheres uh, at the moment of fixation of a work of human creativity and not machine creativity. And so if a computer generates it, it's not eligible for copyright, which lets us go to Disney and say, fine, make all your animators sign away the right to train a model with their animation. Go ahead and replace them all with that model. However, nothing that model produces will get copyright and it will all be in the public yeah. domain and all your competitors can sell it too. And Disney will be like, oh, fuck, no, we're just paying animators. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Enjoy, enjoy trying to draft your IP policy. Yeah. <laughs> if everything is made by a computer. Yeah. Mm. I guess it's like, I, or and correct me if I'm wrong, but is it like also just the case that you can't really sort of make anything like new and unique if like the whole, it's like what you're relying on is in just basically like an expanded clip art collection. Well, so I don't know about that. I mean, what's new and unique, right? Like, is is um, so first future music conference I went to. Uh, George Clinton was on stage and he has this kind of uh, complicated relationship to sampling because he was so widely sampled. He got very little for it. He at one point tried to create this self-serve sampling marketplace where you could get a CD that just had his beats isolated called sample some of disc sample some of dat. And it had a form you could fill in where you just wrote down on the honor system how many samples you used Mm. and how many records you pressed. And then you sent him a check. But, you know, Clinton's biggest problem was that his manager forged his signature on a copyright assignment and stole all of his copyrights and, and he didn't get any money from it. That's why Clinton was like still touring in his 70s, not because he's an unstoppable funk god, but because he was fucking broke, right? Because he got ripped off. And, mm. and, and at this first Future Music Conference, Clinton was like kind of grousing about sampling and saying like he didn't know if it was like that's his music and it's not someone else's music. Again, he's got like a complicated relationship. So I forget the name of the DJ who was next to him, might even have been DJ Spooky, took a a beat from a George Clinton song and played it. And he said, is that yours? And George Clinton said, yes. And then he started looping it and mixing it. And he said, is that still yours? And George Clinton said, yes. And then he did some really fucking complicated stuff that made it an entirely new composition. And he said, is that yours? And I'm pretty sure the direct quote is George Clinton said, man, that's heavy, right? Like <laughs> it was it was not his anymore, right? It was something new. Like Edgar Allan Poe invented the detective story. I just published, mm-hmm. or I'm about to publish a detective novel. I am doing Poe fanfic in some like important mm-hmm. way, right? Brahms's first, they called it Beethoven's 10th because he was a Beethoven tribute act, right? Like mm-hmm. that. Was it new? Sure, it's new. Was it entirely new? Well, of course not, because it like had a bunch of elements that people made up. And so again, like I'm I'm prepared to believe that an ML system can produce stuff that we will call art as part of its mm. collaboration with people. And I think yeah, the stuff yeah. that the people do, we can call creative in the same way that Photoshop produces things we call art in collaboration with people. And the creative work doesn't come from Kai's power tools. Right? It comes mm. from the, the person who uses them. I wonder if part if part of it is the is the kind of the move fast break things uh, attitude of Silicon Valley. I know they're sort of pretending that that's not their sure. their, 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 their their new thing is. Oh, 
Why does everyone not like us? Yeah, yeah. They're all being mean to us because our bank collapsed and we're only small. Like, why are you the drinking mean. the haterade? I, what? <laughs> I, oh, this, this is this is horrid and mean. But for before they started doing before they started doing it's that, it's like Crystal uh, <laughs> Do you remember that guy? Yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. I, I had actually managed to uh, delete that for, until just now. So <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. It's, it's, for it's reminding music me to sharpen your yeah, guillotine by. Quite, it's quite, it's quite something, isn't it? Um, I do, th- I do think that there would be. This is completely separate, but I think that there would be significant value um in maybe not so much now that uh, now that twitter doesn't exist in, exist in any meaningful way anymore but i would be willing to uh to like vet people's threads for them for <laughs> a, a large fee before they before they say something in public like this is like crystal nut then i would just say okay um it's going to cost you um it's going to cost you my day rate which is 10 grand a day but just don't put don't write that down don't write think, that down when people can see it dude, don't I, even think yeah. it <laughs> dude i think that would work i i think i said something like this a couple of weeks ago where i was just like i reckon like and because and because you like compared Twitter, something to crystal nut no i didn't do that i, <laughs> he I, loves I doing I, that it's like his hobby i, I, I told no, him not to <laughs> I, I promise this ramadan i wouldn't do that no what i what i what i said what i said was um i reckon that like some blue check weirdo on like elon's twitter would probably pay you a lot of money to like be their post consultant right yeah probably probably yeah. well actually because like because what's the next thing that's going to happen with elon's twitter is he's going to put on a spider-man costume he's going to go to the server and he's going to like start like like with like bombs strapped to his chest <laughs> and he's going to start yelling where's the button where's the button that you've got pressed on that makes people hate me change it to the button that makes them like me instead that's what that's the next step yeah that's- so- you know, you I, take that as a, a you're prediction. kidding, but you raise a good point, which is that I think that back to mind control rays, I think these guys think they have a mind control ray. Like, yeah. I think the first mark of any con <laughs> artist is themselves. Right. Yeah, and and I, I think they are. I think Elon Musk genuinely believes, you know, the, the nonsense about AI as existential risk and whatever. Right. Absolutely. That, that, oh, no, that no, is no, like no, he, his thing. Oh, he, he absolutely does. And what is so interesting is that he thought that he was buying Twitter as a mind control ray. And because yeah. he is very, very stupid, what he didn't understand was that he was purchasing a public utility, which he could use to further influence existing political infrastructure and policymaking. But for some reason, he keeps trying to find the mind control ray, which makes people yeah. laugh at his memes, which is it's fun. I, it, you can't say it's not funny. You can't say that's not witty. That's to me a very witty outcome. Uh, did, but yes, did you uh, see the the British Psychiatric Association did the study where they identified that dad jokes were useful because they teach kids to handle awkward situations? That's I keep funny. thinking about that when he posts. That's that's very very funny. Going going back to what I was saying about this kind of, the, the 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 move fast break stuff is that part of that is this insistence on this um on this silicon valley mediated way of experiencing um the cultural environment and and the social world whether that be through this kind of technology or whether that be through social media or whether that be through uh disruptive st- uh, startups where things that were free are now available to rent from them you know, and so on and so forth. Because, you know, if you think, because if, if you think about the kind of the original infrastructure of the internet and how much of it was done 
um, on kind of open source and for free. And then these kind of jerks showed up and were like, yeah, but what if we rented it to people? <laughs> uh, and part of that is this deliberate, uh, deliberate rejection of being part of any tradition because you are, you are moving fast and breaking stuff. So why would that not also apply to um, the, again, very normal and very consistent idea of being within an artistic tradition? So if you, if you write something, you're not just, you're not, you're not writing without influences. If you're writing without influences, then anything you write is not going to be any good. This is why people say that to be a good writer, you have to you have to read very widely. It's a, this this is again this is this is very very normal advice that people get that people give to kind of new writers starting out. But if you uh, but if you start mediating uh, this kind of cultural process and cultural tradition with this Silicon Valley mentality, then it does suddenly start to look like uh, like a kind of aggressive and frightening novelty as opposed to just another thing which can be added to the to the kind of the creative toolbox and it's something that can be made use of or rejected depending on depending on the whims of the individual who's doing the creating. Well, look, you know, I think that there's an analogy here to the to the housing market where, you know, wanting to have a place to live is not bad. And when we set up the rules so that the only way to have a place to live is to either be an immiserated tenant or a homeowner whose uh, home is only worthwhile because immiserated tenants exist somewhere, which drives up the value of your home, then then people respond to that. Like the right's not wrong when they say, you know, incentives matter, but um, it, it's not. Um, but but. That doesn't mean that those that that that's the only way to do it. And and, you know, people are trapped in that prison. You know, when I was growing up as like a baby writer, the advice that I got from from every writer who was kind of a mentor of mine was to just cling to as much copyright as I could. And, mm. and the reason for that advice was that copyright was what they viewed as their mechanism for uh, creating negotiating leverage over intermediaries like publishers. And mm -hmm. uh, and movie studios and whatever, and they said, yeah. you know, if you give it up, they'll 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 be able to exploit you, and that's yeah. not wrong, uh, but it, it's also not complete. Like for one thing, as you know, a bunch of musicians discovered during the Napster era, something that's useful at at uh, mediating your relationship with a publisher or a studio or a label is not necessarily useful for mediating your relationship with your fans, right? Your fans are mm -hmm. like not going to color within the lines of, of copyright, they, they actually can't, right? If copyright was simple enough that like 12-year-olds writing fanfic could do so without violating copyright law, it would be a very little utility to actual copyright lawyers because it would have to be very simple indeed, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we do need rules. I think that there's like a, a place for, for, you know, an etiquette among fans and, and writers but that doesn't mean that they should be the same rules in the same way that kind of Mark Zuckerberg had this psychotic idea that you should be the same person, whether you were talking to your mom or your daughter or your partner and, or your teacher or your boss. And uh, and that's just crazy. Right. Like it's it's really like anyone who who was who, who actually behaved that way would be really unpleasant to be around. You know, mm. like either they would have to treat their boss like their kid or they'd have to treat their kid like their boss. Either one is going to be just gross. Right. And so and so, you know, like I, I think that in the same way, you know, yeah, you, you do need some rules about how you negotiate, how you uh, 
interrelate with your fans, but they can't be the same rules as how you interrelate with your agent or your publisher or your editor or whatever. That would be bonkers. And and of course, that is the great failure of centralized, non-siloed posting platforms that not only are you likely to come to the attention of audiences that you maybe don't want to come to the attention of, but also each individual person has a number of different audiences if you want to think of your life lived lived for an audience but in terms of anything that you might write publicly that every that every individual person has uh, has yeah. a multitude of audiences and it and it's not ideal if they all <laughs> if they're all seeing exactly the same stuff i can't remember if it's judith Judith Doneth or Mizuka Ito or or Dana Boyd, but one of them calls this networked publics. I think mm. public is a better word than a than an audience. You know that there's like a there's yeah. a there's a way that you are perceived by a group of people, and it's different depending on on you know from moment to moment and group from group to group. I think that that's like a I I think that unlike having think, perceiving yourself as having an audience all the time, which can I think be very constraining and 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 bonkers. I think that you know cons- considering there being different publics that are audiences to or, or, you know, witnesses to or understanders of your personality. I think that is a, like a perfectly valid thing. Mm. And, and also, I mean, what it comes down to, and I think I think you made that made the made the point earlier is that people steal from artists and people exploit artists. You don't right. you don't need a kind of a kind of phantasmagoric technology to worry that you are going to be exploited when trying to lead a creative life. There are lots and lots and lots of factors which uh, which are intervening to mean that it's basically impossible to make a living just as a writer, for example, um, before you even get to the idea of there being this kind of like almost kind of almost sort of bogeyman. Um, yeah. Well, and just like you know, we're 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 recording in the week of the Internet Archives uh, um, mm. bad judgment at the at the lower court, uh, and you know there are a lot of writers who are upset about the Internet Archive fewer than I think than would have been the last time around because I think a lot of those people are are starting to clue in that there are some real uh, other equities here. But um, you know, one of the one of the things that they say is that like when you circulate a book online, it takes money out of a writer's mouth. And I think that that is a thing we should worry about, right? That the writers, mm. you know, taking taking money out of a out of writer's pocket, taking groceries off their table is, is an equity that, you know, if you're a leftist and you care about labor, or if you're a lover of the arts and you care about artistic livelihood, you should, you should care about. But I think that, you know, the internet archive is the wrong target for that wrath. Uh, you know, as a, as a practical matter, the books that the Internet Archive was circulating were primarily out of print, and the median checkout was something like 30 minutes. It's people mm-hmm. looking up a fact in a PDF, right? So it's not substitutive. Meanwhile, if you are worried about someone who is substitutive, right, who does know, ex- who, who, who is able to erode the wage bill of creative laborers, it's Amazon, mm-hmm. right? Amazon has it has like information. So one of the things that was interesting about the archive case is that Hachette directed their experts not to produce any market analysis about the harms to their bottom line from the Internet Archive. Uh, and, you know, there's this question like, can are, are there harms? Aren't there harms? What are the harms like? My guess is the publishers can't even calculate them because they have very little data about how their mm-hmm. books perform. You know who's got data about how books perform? Amazon. 
Mm-hmm. Amazon knows who buys what book with what. They know what page you give up on reading a book. They know where you travel with your books. They know, uh, you know, what you search for. They know what books are bought together. And Amazon is a publisher. And Amazon mm-hmm. is a publisher that pays its writer less than the big five. And Amazon is, a, Amazon is a publisher that also runs a bookstore that at one point had a program called Project Gazelle, where project managers were um, exhorted to think of themselves as cheetahs hunting down the sickly gazelles from the pack. And the sickly gazelles were independent publishers and they were targeted for unsustainable discounts. The only thing Amazon's lawyers objected to here was the name of the program, right? Everything else was considered fair game. And so, you know, like that, you know, the the kind of the most uh, terrible sin of the alcoholic dad is not to feel like his life is out of control and lashing out. It's that he lashes out at the people who have nothing to do with the people who are responsible for his misery, right? And the the sin of 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 people who are out of control of their lives, whether it's, you know, because they own a house and they're desperately trying to pay the bill and they've they've been told that they should buy a second home as a rental property and whatever, or writers who are trying to figure out how to how to earn a living or whatever, the sin that they have is they reach for the soft targets. Uh, as opposed to the people who are the genuine authors of their misery. And this has been the problem with revolutionary movements since the French Revolution, right? Getting your guillotines aimed at the right people. And, you know, it, it's like, it doesn't, it's not an indictment of people that they are no better than the radicals of the French Revolution at figuring out who to aim the guillotine at. Mm. I guess like one of the, one of the things that like came up when I was, uh, when I was like doing like some of the episode notes and reading your stuff, and also just the things you were saying, because uh, the Amazon stuff to me is like really interesting in terms of where um, how difficult it sort of seems to be to kind of or like they you know it's easy to sort of recognize if you work in like creative industries or even just like any sort of just like any types of like producing sort of like things that are of creative in nature is that like you sort of know that Amazon the deal that you strike with Amazon is one that is very much like stacked against you uh, but it's also something that like it feels like there's nothing you can, the, the way that like online marketplaces are structured, the way that like the internet itself is structured is one where like it works in their favor. And I was thinking about this like in relation to AI and just like the sort of overhyped, well, or where like AI kind of gets overhyped both in terms of its um, abilities and in terms of its like, you know, uh, in terms of its detriments as well, which is more of this idea that like, even with the criticism or even the valorization, uh, the valorization of AI, like there doesn't seem, there seems to be this like acknowledgement that like the tech companies that are going to use this, all this, the companies that are going to use this, are, you know, there's nothing you can really do about them. And so I wondered whether like in the same way that you were sort of talking about how it's really difficult to, or like um, even though, you know, anyone who works in publishing or like writing sort of knows that like Amazon is really like the biggest problem, like one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem, but they can't really do anything about it. And so you end up with like Internet Archive taking the hits for what is effectively like an economy built around Amazon, whether we're sort of seeing with that with AI as well, um, which is to say, and I'll, I'll try to put this simply, like is the problem, like is one of the problems at hand, just the idea that like because these tech companies that we are, or that kind of determine so much about the fate and the future of the internet are all kind of saying that like, well, AI is this inevitable thing and there's nothing you can do about it, then means that like, we can't really sort of, like it's very difficult then to sort of make a kind of, or, or to sort of make a kind of standard critique of AI. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. I think inevitableism has been, you know, the the rights playbook, at least since Thatcher and there is no alternative, right? If you can, if you can uh, insist loudly that there is no alternative, which is really just a way of saying, please stop trying to think of an alternative, 
then then you can you can you know um demoralize your adversary right out of the gate you don't even like you you can do stuff that that forecloses on the possibility of us saying like what if we don't make it or what if we make it a different way what if it's under democratic control what if it's under collective control you know like all of those things that are kind of uh, swept off the table when when we have these critiques that impoverishes our our debate so the debate just ends up being ai good ai bad as opposed to like which ai do we want if we want any mm. yeah that i think i think that i think that makes a lot of sense i think yeah i think that i don't think it's a kind of entirely uh benign thing that we sort of need not worry about and i also would caution against um something that i've seen a lot of people doing which i think is very uh which i think is um just just a very kind of unproductive way of engaging with uh, the sort of capacity for new technology, which is how to explain to old people that this is just a search engine, um, and I just and I just always think, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't lead with that. Actually, I wouldn't lead with being obnoxious to people who find it, who who find these kinds of. Uh, these kinds of technology alarming for whatever reason they find them alarming particularly since uh particularly since the another another aspect of the uh of the of the silicon valley mindset and particularly how uh you know that how how they kind of protect and treasure their their algorithms and you know the proprietary algorithm um that it is deliberately kept obscure and it's deliberately kept uh and it's deliberately kept like i said phantasmagoric and and miraculous and like something which if you um if you direct the wrong query at it then it could generate a demon in the latent space and so i don't think you can really do too much sneering at people who 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 do who are concerned about what the what the possibilities are uh for uh for misuse of this kind of technology but um just to just to kind of repeat what we've been saying throughout is that if we're talking about who misuses te- technology and who makes use makes poor use of automation it 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 is it's it's corporations it's not it doesn't tend to be individual um individual people and i think just a really good illustration of uh, of what we're talking about, about you know what what the actual pressures are on people trying to do creative work, was that um, I remember many 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 years ago, people saying that um, Napster and Pirate Bay etc. would be completely destructive to musicians being able to make a living out of their music, and I was talking to a musician pal of of mine about this, and he said. No, 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 no. Because people, when people downloaded stuff for free that they liked and pirated stuff that they liked, they would then buy the stuff that we made. That was how it. That was how it worked. So people worked out what they liked, and then when they found people that they wanted to support, they would then buy music and buy merchandise and buy gig tickets and and so on and so forth. And then he was like, "What? What's killed us?" It's it it's Spotify. That's that's what's that's what's done us in. It's not it's not 
people technically stealing from us, but not in the way that it has been made possible for corporations to steal from us. And I think that's the, I think that's sort of probably for me, the takeaway of all of this stuff. I mean, I think that's very well said. I, I, I mean, what Spotify to me proves is that the reason people use Napster was not because it was free, but because it was better. Mm-hmm. Um, some people surely use Napster because it was free, but the the majority of people who were using Napster just wanted um, something better. I mean, recall that when Napster started, 80% of recorded music wasn't for sale at any price, right? The labels rationed what music was available in the stream of commerce as a, as a means of uh, ensuring that the stuff that was in the front list was selling better because when you went to the record store, there were fewer titles and there were also physical constraints on the, on the record store on the high street. Um, and, but you know, people are, no one ever bought a Spotify subscription because they wanted to make sure that someone at, at Warner music or UMG or even Spotify was well-paid, right? The only reason people are buying those is because they think that it's the fair thing to do for the musicians. And, you know, I, I wrote a book with Rebecca Giblin called choke point capitalism, where we run down kind of how the underlying scam at Spotify works. And it starts with the three labels that control 75 or 70% of all recordings, um, demanding that Spotify make them a partner as a condition of licensing to the Spotify catalog, and then negotiating with Spotify for a rock bottom per stream rate, because the lower the stream rate is, the more profitable Spotify is. And the money that those businesses take out of Spotify as labels, they have to share with their artists. The money they take out as Spotify shareholders, they don't have to share with anyone. And so they negotiated this rock bottom rate. And moreover, they um, uh, negotiated what's called most favored nation status, which means that uh, the 30% of music that's not controlled by the big three can't be paid more than the big three are getting, except they're not significant shareholders in Spotify. And so Spotify just, just, you know, is a means of transferring value from fans who care about artists, not to artists, but to labels. Mm-hmm. And, and to that extent, I think that's completely right. And, you know, the, the only time the labels ever cleaned up their act in terms of how they compensated artists, it was in the era of Napster and other digital distribution platforms mm-hmm. when they suddenly had to compete with Interesting. them. You know, competition is not the be all and end all, but it, it does disciplined firms. Firms are disciplined by either competition or regulation. So I just want to wonder, because like we can talk about this for like a long time and there are like definitely a lot of questions that like we didn't get to answer. Maybe we can do that again in the future. But I guess I sort of wonder, uh, Corey, like with, and obviously like because all the AI kind of tech or like, you know, the quote, quote, square quote, like AI tech is kind of in, in its infancy at the moment, but we can kind of see where at least like where these tech, how these tech guys are talking about the AI um that we may sort of see like some similar patterns in terms of like the ways in which labor is treated the ways in which like, labor is undermined in particular um but also just the way in which like content is going to be produced and re- like consistently reproduced and for creatives especially like and i'm not talking about like people because again i think one of the things i wanted to say earlier was that when it comes to like the ways in which like a lot of people who work in creative practice like make money now um, and we've spoken about this on the show before in terms of like the fact that, well, if you want to do any type of creative work, you probably need to like be supplementing that with like multiple jobs or like lots of sort of freelance work, lots of copywriting, technical writing and so on. And these are the things where like AI is going like all this type of AI tech might and or probably is very likely to undermine at least kind of your ability to be able mm-hmm. to do that. What can people or what should people like who are working in these fields, like what should they be thinking about in terms of like how they yeah, well, how they think about their labor in confrontation with this AI technology. Is it too early right now to kind of 
really sort of formulate any plans or are there like ways what like you know is unionization like one effort to do that what should what should people who work in those types of creative industries and practices be doing yeah i think the important thing is to not do the tech bros job for them by um uh falling prey to the inevitableism that is so central to the the AI story, right? That this must exist, it will exist, it will replace workers, and it and it should. You know, that's a that's I think a a, a problem that workers advocates are kind of uh, falling mm-hmm. into as well. They're 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 repeating the same story, and I think that it's it's important to um, c- when you contemplate a remedy to contemplate to to think through. How that remedy is going to work, given your current the the current environment in your labor market, right? Stop thinking yourself as like an LLC of the of the portfolio who mm. you know is out there negotiating one small business person to another with you know your label, your studio, your 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 publisher, and and in, instead you know remember that you don't get to negotiate anything and typically on a contract, right? Like. A freelance contract often includes the most ghastly overreaching language, right? Like, um, you know, if you're a freelancer, you've certainly signed a contract that says that you warrant that this violates no law anywhere, and you indemnify the publisher against all claims settled or um, uh, valid or not, which they can settle at their own discretion, which means that if you've got an office in Thailand or Saudi or Russia or, you know, China, and and you, one of your writers violates the law there, a thing which they are in no way familiar with and have no way to determine, they don't even know where you have exposure, you can offer whomever it is an unlimited settlement, and then you can ask the writer to make you whole for it, right? That mm-hmm. is like a, a fucking bananas contract. And if you think that in a world where like that is non-negotiable, that you're going to be able to say, oh, but... I'm going to retain the right to train a model with the work I do for you. You know, you're going to be really disappointed. And what you're going to end up doing is, is demanding a right that your boss is going to take from you. And, and instead you've got to think about what rights your boss can't take from you and under what circumstances Mm. your boss can't take your rights. And as you say, a lot of that is unions and, and what's not unions is often labor law, which is a thing that you only get when there are unions to advocate for it. I can, I completely, I completely agree with that. I wish there was a proper freelancers union. I mean, I'm a dues-paying NUJ member. Unfortunately, the NUJ took a, a really bad position on uh, the European Copyright Directive in 2019 and demanded mandatory copyright filters for all online services, which means that in order to set up an online service, you have to have $100 million or you have to license Google's online service, which basically means that Google gets mm. to run the internet forever. That would it was be a really uh, terrible idea. It'd be an interesting episode to kind of cover because I actually vaguely remember that. I'm I, I'm no longer an NUJ member. That's just because like I need to renew my membership. But right. I also have a lot of thoughts on the NUJ. Maybe we can talk about yeah. that some other time. Um, but on that note, uh, yeah, we probably do have to wrap up because it is quite late where we are, and Covey yes. is getting dark. And uh, so I was like, say, Corey, thank you so much for your time, and also oh, thank, thank you so you. much for coming on. Um, I know that I plugged a bunch of your stuff at the top, but is there anything that you want to plug or anything that you think our listeners should pay attention to uh, coming up? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I don't allow digital rights management to be put on my work because that um, means that it's locked forever to the platform. Article two of the Copyright Directive 2001 makes it a crime to remove DRM, even if the rights holder authorizes it, which means that every time you buy an Audible book, you can't ever take it off of Amazon's platform. And if you break up with Amazon, you lose all the audiobooks you've ever bought. 
So I don't sell my audiobooks on Amazon because they're mandatory DRM, which means that I have to kickstart them. And so right now I am kickstarting the audio of my new book. I got out of the studio yesterday. Will Wheaton recorded it. He did an amazing job. And you can back the Kickstarter at redteamblues.com. Cool. We'll put that link in the show notes, as well as all the links to the um, articles that we uh, kind of referenced in this episode, and also a link to uh, the new book. Um, I think from us, you, you know where to follow me. Phoebe, do you want to do any uh, plugs before we, yeah. uh, before we close um, out? I am been very gratified by the number of people who have subscribed to my Substacks so far. So why why not why not join them? Why not follow why not follow the herd and subscribe to my Substack, which is um, phoeberoy.substack.com. Um, it is called From the Twisted Mind of Phoebe. Again, a joke that I permitted to go too far. Um, now I have um, dealt with a really, really large deadline. Um, managed to get a project that I've been working on for a long time off my desk. Um, so from so from April, um, I will be uh, I will be releasing the posts as I said I was going to, which is going to be uh, four posts a month for paid subscribers and two for free subscribers. I am currently writing a very very mental thing about Lana Del Rey, which will be out this week. It's very exciting. You should do that. It's mental. Uh, it's really, really mental. It's the it's the words it's the words of a woman who hasn't seen sunshine for like two weeks. That's that's what we're that's what we're dealing with here. <laughs> that's why it's going to be great. This show is produced by Devin. You can follow them at Devin underscore on Earth. Also listen to Kill James Bond if you don't already. I'm sure many of you do. Uh, and finally, uh, we have a Patreon. Uh, five bucks a month, you get lots of cool bonus content, uh, lots of really interesting interviews and conversations. But also, it helps us to do the show without ads, which we really like doing. So, and we would like to continue doing it without ads. So, yeah, five bucks a month, uh, and you get lots of really good content and good community and everything. It's a lot of fun. Um, and I think on that note, uh, we're time to close it off. So, until the next time, we will catch you later. Bye. Ciao. Bye.